Hello everyone and welcome to Sam Talks Technology, your weekly guide about all things tech and business with Sam Sethi. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sam Talks Technology. I've got one of my friends here today, but he also happens to be the Director of Content for BBC Children in Need. He also happened to be part of the Big Night In. Tommy Nagra, how are you? I'm very good, Sam. Nice to speak to you. And to you, sir. Now, I just described what you do. You've been at the BBC 25 years, but you had a wonderful evening the other night, raised close on £70 million. What was the big night in like? How did you get involved and what were you doing as part of it? It was quite incredible, actually, Sam. Quite remarkable what we managed to do, particularly during uh, lockdown. This was the coming together of not just BBC Children in Need, but Comic Relief and the brilliant team at BBC Studios. So it was an incredible collaboration between three different parts of the organisation. First time we've ever worked together with Children in Need. Uh, sorry, with Comic Relief. It was uh, a roller coaster, and to think what we managed to achieve in little, just a little bit over three weeks. Three that. weeks? I mean, who came up with the let's do this idea? Well, I think it came from a number of areas. I think we realised very quickly as soon as lockdown started that the BBC had a very important role to play, not just in terms of its public service remit in terms of bringing the nation together, but for BBC One in particular, which is very much about universality and actually bringing the country together. I think what we've seen over the last few weeks during lockdown is really the BBC coming to its own, I think, whether it be through the live lessons we're doing for children who are stuck at home, whether it be through our new services and informing the public about what's actually happening, but actually what the big night in was about, Sam, was about actually cheering the country up. Um, right. And, and actually at a time when it was absolutely necessary to, to do that, but at the same time to bring the two BBC charities, Children in Need and Comic Relief, together to support the thousands of small charities we support on the front line who, because of the situation we're in, are finding it incredibly hard to get the support that they do day in, day out to the people who most need it. So it was telling the stories of the projects that both Comic Relief and Children in Need fund, but also doing it in a way which also entertained the nation. So part of it was about kind of reminding people why it was so important to do this, but also hopefully entertaining them along the way. Now, as Director of Content, were you responsible for things like the Foo Fighters' amazing, amazing track, bringing back David Walliams uh, and Little Britain. Was that your responsibility? It wasn't just me, Sam. Um, I wouldn't take credit for all of it. I mean, we have brilliant people at Comic Relief. So Richard Curtis, for example, and all those brilliant sketches, you know, he was able to open his contact book and ring, ring them up. He knows people like David and fantastic. I, the Radio 1, the single, which was incredible. So Radio 1 were doing this incredible single for their Stay Home Live Lounge. And I managed to convince Network Radio to all come together on the day. They were already doing this brilliant sing-along that they do on a Thursday where all the pop stations all get together. And we thought, actually, if ever there was a time for all of them to come together, alongside us, alongside studios, alongside Comic Relief, it was now. 
So that single was quite um, quite incredible when I first heard it from a brilliant uh, producer at Radio One called Chris Price, who'd been talking to Dave Grohl about that quite special track, and we managed to persuade them to actually do it on our day, so to do it on the day of the big night in. So across Radio 1, Radio 2, Radio 3, Radio 4, 5 Live, 6 Music, Asian Network, 1 Extra, they put on a whole day of content telling stories of where the money would go, but also doing some quite special things. And Radio 1 had this brilliant idea of doing a stay-at-home live lounge, which um, I managed to persuade them would be a really good idea if it also raised money for the big night in and it was all done in super quick time everybody at home and it's quite a special song i have to say it is i mean it was already one of my favorite songs i prefer the acoustic version of the foo fighters everlong but that i have to say was quite special yeah it's amazing what you can achieve in a short space of time when you think about that that as well as coming up with three hours of fantastic television bringing three different organisations together and then the cherry on the cake would be uh, potentially a number one single. Although I'm feeling quite uncomfortable about knocking Captain Tom potentially on <laughs> Oh my God, you could be enemy number one in the country if you did yeah, that. I feel a bit uncomfortable about that, but it is an incredible single and I'm very grateful to our friends at Radio One for making it work for us. So explain what it was like on the night. I mean, you've produced, and we'll talk about that as we go along in this interview, programmes for a number of years for the BBC and outside the BBC, but what was it like on the night producing a show like this? Where were you in context to the show? Were you at home or were you in the studio? Where were you? I was at home. I've been living in the world of Zoom. So we have a fantastic executive producer, Peter Davey. Only a handful of people were actually in this one show studio. I mean, Peter, the exec, was actually in a corridor on a phone. I was on a Zoom uh, call, so I'd set up a mini gallery in my lounge where I had my my computer, my two iPads, my phone. <laughs> I watched the rehearsals through Zoom on a screen, so I was watching the rehearsals throughout the day. I was listening to the content on radio on my um, smart speaker and flicking through all the stations. Quite an incredible day, actually. It was like our own mini live aid, it felt like, but all from my little bunker at home. So we were all connected on the as the program went out. I was in the I had a Zoom set up into the gallery where we were feeding any comments or anything. The team at BBC Studios were in the studio, but only a handful of them, all socially physically distanced from each other. It was quite scary because it was live, so anything could have gone wrong. But I think the key thing that we were keen to get right was the tone of the night because obviously there are a lot of fatalities and we're kind of we're kind of at the peak of COVID-19 and just asking people for money at a time when times are quite hard is You've got to get that right. So we, we did think long and hard, and, and I know Peter, the exec, really, really did think long and hard about the mix of items that we had on the show. And obviously, we had stories from across Comic Relief and my team, children in need, were kind of, this is where the money's going to go. We had a brilliant uh, team who were coming up with all the sketches and all the fun stuff. We even managed to get a contribution from 
Prince William, which was all very kind of a top secret. And most people didn't know until the day. Right. About for a couple of weeks. So I'd been on the phone alongside Peter negotiating what we could potentially do with them, which was incredible. But I think what was incredibly heartwarming and really just reflecting on it over the weekend is just the generosity of everybody. Not just all the people who worked on the show, but actually the great British public who, despite the hard times, put their hands in their pocket and have managed to raise £67 million and rising. And it's very humbling when you know where that money is going to go. So So explain where does that money go? So most of us think we see comic relief and we see the normal children in need show, but most people, I don't know if they really understand where the money actually gets spent. Well, well, for children in need, we, we fund over 3000 projects across the UK and it can range from anything from children who are suffering, suffering from anxiety, depression, isolation, bereavement, disability, bullying, a whole range of things which actually during COVID-19 have been exacerbated because they've lost that day-to-day contact. And the same with Comic Relief. I mean, Comic Relief are an international charity. The children need a very UK focus. But they also do a lot in this space. So they fund the project they do called, called Fair Share, which is getting food and emergency essentials, a project that children in need fund, which is getting white goods and most people having a cooker and a washing machine uh, and bedding and things like that. It's not a kind of, it's not a normal for them. And when we had the floods, for example, in February, our emergency essentials program was key to getting very quickly money to people who most needed it. Uh, And obviously COVID-19 has further accelerated the need out there. So it's really, what the programme did was through entertainment and comedy and music actually raised a significant amount of money, which is going to go to those projects. Now, with the big night in having finished, what's next? Is there another children in need planned? for later in the year or is that far too soon are you just recovering (laughs) oh no well we've been planning it for some time actually when covid happened i mean this happened three weeks ago but we're already planning for the need which will happen in november okay um it will be our 40th anniversary our 40th birthday of children in need so 40 years of doing some incredible work to support children and young people who knows what the situation is going to be like, whether we do a similar show to what we've just achieved in, uh, in record-breaking time and breakneck speed, or hopefully blockade is lifted and we're able to, to do, to do a, a very different type of show. So, yes, no, the work continues on that. We had a little bit of a pause to deliver the big night in, but, yeah, all, all thoughts now turn to our 40th and uh, our, our own appeal... Uh, in November. Brilliant. Well, I look forward to that. Now, I want to just go back in time a little bit and just understand about how young Tommy got into all of this. I mean, where did it all start for you? So I had a rather naive... So I, I went to university and did all that kind of stuff and started in local radio. My first job was in daytime television, which was a show called Good Morning Anna and Nick, where we were producing three hours of live television every day, every morning. That was an incredible place to cut your teeth. 
you know, you, <laughs> it was relentless. I mean, we've just done this one show a few weeks ago, which is incredible, but doing a live show as your first big TV job really, really did kind of whip me into shape. And then um, I suppose when I started Sam, I had a rather naive no- notion of, you know, I wanted to make television programs and produce and direct documentaries that kind of changed the world or made a difference. And I was fortunate enough to be able to, to, to do, just in my own little space, I moved to the Multicultural Programs Department, where we made programs about all kinds of things that really made a difference, sometimes changing government policy and stuff. And that was the stuff that really fueled me. And actually, it feels like I've gone full circle. And actually, you know, Big Night In was almost like, it feels like I've gone in one full circle in terms of helping make content that makes a difference. And that's why you know, 25 odd years in and outside the BBC. I also spent five years working in the independent sector, which was an incredible experience as well. But I think at times like this, you realise why the BBC is so important and bringing the nation together. We're not a Netflix, we're not an Amazon. Sometimes it's very easy to look at these cool young brands who are, well, you know, we really, I don't think any of them, have a charitable purpose like this. So when I started, actually, it was all about being a program maker. I worked on documentaries. I worked on quiz shows. I worked on music shows. I traveled the world. I've had an incredible, I've been very blessed, I have to say, in being able to do that. And this particular job is very special because actually it's television with a purpose is what I call it. It's not just about how many people have watched it, which was usually my metric. It's actually just, it, it's about actually how much money are we raising through our programs. So actually, whilst I, I'm not from the charity world, I'm learning about it, I'm less than two years in the job, but actually the, the combination of that and the work I've done in across broadcasting, across different channels, BBC, Channel 4, Nat Geo, actually this is bringing it all together. So would you say this is your pinnacle of your career i mean i don't want to write you off yet tommy but have you climbed your everest this is a very special i'm very proud of lots of programs i've made actually sam you'll know this being a liverpool fan but i i made a documentary on uh hillsborough and the injustice of what happened there and that was that meant something very personal to me because I was... Well, because we're both avid Liverpool fans, as we talk about shortly. Yeah, I was, at, I was at Hillsborough. I was a student at the time. And really? I didn't realise that. Yeah, uh, it, was a hu- it had a huge impact on me personally. And making that documentary was a real highlight. Big Night In was an incredible highlight because of all the different partners involved. But yeah, I, I, I don't know about I, I hope there's more to come. I'm not past it yet. I think <laughs> one of the things about working at Children in Need and why it is so special amongst the other stuff that I've done is I had one of those birthdays with a big zero on the end. And I'd got to the stage where I'd made lots of programmes and I'd been on that factory and it is quite relentless. My hat's off all the people who are on the coalface of turning around programs every day. I'd done a fair bit of that and I'd got to the stage where I was looking to do something quite different. So I was quite fortunate when the opportunity to join Children in Need as their director of content came about because it, it felt like this was different. I'm also still learning. The charity sector is facing huge, huge pressures, as is every other sector, um, including the BBC. So I think the next few years are going to be quite 
uh, a different mountain to climb, shall I say. And I think what's, what we're seeing with lockdown is actually creativity like you've never seen before. You only need to go online and see what people are doing in their own homes, how people are thinking about different ideas of fundraising, different ways of making television. I mean, the other incredible feat around the big night in was it was all done remotely. So the carbon footprint, we're not traveling as much. We're not printing lots of paper. Uh, if you said this to me six months ago, I would have said it's impossible, but we've done it. So I think this could be the start of a very exciting period of creativity for all broadcasters and also how we tell our stories on digital channels, on different platforms. I think that's the next big mountain, I think. And I think people have le- had to learn new skills. I mean, I come from a technical background and so this is not new to me. I've been using Zoom for a number of years, but it's been wonderful watching friends who aren't technical adapting to this new way of working. And, and I question whether they would go back to the normal, as some people call it, because I don't think there will be a normal uh, it'll be a new normal. You know this space because you've lived and breathed it for, yeah. for many years. But the interesting thing throughout this whole process is the technology has always been there. With Zoom, it's new for a lot of people, but it's always been there. The tech has always been there. It's just that now people are forced to use it and they're seeing what the potential is. And I think that's unlocking a huge amount of creativity, which if it's channeled properly, can create a, huge, a new world of content which is reaching yeah. audiences and places. The ways that it- I call COVID the great accelerator. I try and look for silver linings. And for the people in my world, we've been banging the drum saying, why go to an office? Why are we commuting? Why are we doing excess travel? All these sorts of things. And hopefully people will think there will be a rush post-COVID when officially we're allowed to go back to work, whatever that means. But I think people will start to question, well, hang on a minute, I'm stood next to Fred on my left and Joe on my right, and I, I don't know which one's infectious or not infectious. I don't know if that's going to be a rush back to work, as some people might think. I think you're absolutely right, Sam. I mean, I'm just thinking about what we managed to achieve on the Big Mike, and I'm not so sure we could have turned this around so quickly and effectively. It sounds bizarre as I say this, if we hadn't had lockdown, because what we were able to do was actually have very quick, focused conversations over Zoom that you wouldn't be able to have in what we normally do for our annual appeal. I'm forever, I live in Altrincombe just now, and I am forever on a train to London, having face-to-face meetings, trying to convince people to do things for us. And a lot of my role is about influencing and persuading and getting people to work together and actually what technology has enabled us to do, Sam, is to do that in a very much more efficient way, actually. And I've just thought of that as I'm talking to you, that actually I'm not, I'm, I think if we had tried to do this in the world pre-COVID, shall I say, I think it actually could have been a lot harder than what it was in the end. Well, one of the things you said to me earlier was um, you were slightly responsible for bringing Sanjeev Baskar to the airways. How did that come about? Because <laughs> oh, he's Sanjeev. one of my heroes, by the way, so I'm going to put it out there. Oh, Sanjeev, yeah, Sanjeev's, uh, so w- way back in the day when I worked in daytime, I also worked in the, what was in the multicultural programs department. And yeah, Sanjeev's one of, I saw Sanjeev, believe it or not, with a musician you might know called Nithin Sorni, and they were mm-hmm. uh, they were, they were like, they were dubbed the Asian Morecambe and Wise 
and I saw them at the Waterman Art Centre way back in the early 90s. And I thought, these guys are talented. And I, um, I auditioned Sanjeev and yeah, I'm kind of partly responsible for giving me his first TV break, although I can't take credit for the Kumars at number 42 because I remember him telling me when he was driving his Datsun how he had this idea about an Asian family in their homes who would interview big, high-profile celebrities. And this was way back in the early 90s that I remember saying to Sanjay, oh, that'll never, I don't think you'll ever get that away. <laughs> so Sanjay's so San gone on to, he's gone on to great things and he's, he's, a, he's a, an incredibly talented and funny and thoughtful individual. But yeah, he's one of, one of my early protégés and we still keep in touch and stuff and he's, he's been very supportive, even though he's... Oof. Things that links the three of us. I say links the three of us. I have no link to Sanjeev at all. But one of the things that links the three of us is we're all Liverpool fans. Now, you explained sadly that you were at Hillsborough. Explain to to me and everyone who's listening why are you a Liverpool fan? You've got a theory about why possibly Asians or people of colour are Liverpool fans. Yeah, um, I am. I think Liverpool and football is my outside of work is my real kind of passion yeah just for those who can't see your room tommy it's covered with dagley shirts liverpool memorabilia all over it <laughs> yeah. yeah i am I, I, I am a super fan as people would put it and partly it's it's really interesting uh, a lot of british asians and black minority ethnic people of my age didn't support their local teams i was born up born and brought up in, in birmingham and the local teams were West Bromwich Albion and Aston Villa and Birmingham City. But actually, and I had a theory about this. I mean, my dad wasn't a football fan. He thought it was a horrible sport full of racist hooligans. And the, for those of you who might have grown up in the 70s, uh, there was certainly an element to that. Um, he was always into cricket. Um, and it was really funny because a lot of my friends, you know, football teams are passed on from generation to generation. So you follow the team of your father. And I never really had that. My dad was a first-generation immigrant. I was Same here. First-generation immigrant. He loved cricket and he loved all those things. I thought cricket was boring, to be honest with you. Football I still boring. do. Yeah. My window on the world was actually match of the day growing up. Yes, in same. And I remember seeing Bill Shankly being interviewed and the charisma just oozed out of the screen. I thought, who is this guy? I mean, he spoke in a language which was understandable. He was a man of the people. And he just had this incredible charisma. At the time, the three big teams, Sam, were Liverpool, Leeds, and Manchester United, kind of. But they were the three big clubs. And I think a lot of black and Asian kids, that was their window into the world of football because they didn't have it passed down from their parents. So that was my Liverpool and that red kit and Bill Shankly speaking so passionately about the power of football and plus the fact that Liverpool were winning everything and as a kid you kind of want to associate yourself with teams that that are winning and so that was it I was hooked and that alongside my other love which is music and being a Beatles fan my dad did like the Beatles so he liked he liked cricket (laughs) he also loved the Beatles and that those two influences actually for a boy in Birmingham and I had it you know as I was growing up, he's like, why are you a Liverpool fan? And it was kind of actually, 
the love for Liverpool since then, and I, I used to go every, I still go home games. And my son now, who's who's going to turn eighteen, he's also a passionate Liverpool fan because his dad is. So that's yes. my kind. Of- you said you grew up in the seventies around West Brom. They had the three degrees at the time. Did that never appeal to you? My first ever game I ever went to was I remember it vividly. West Brom in nineteen seventy nine. Teddy Dalglish scored a goal through Tony Godden's legs. I still remember it because I was right behind the goal. And that's it. I was actually in the West Bromwich Albion end for that first game. Yeah. And, and after that, actually, what they used to do at the Hawthorns in those days was they would open up the turnstiles at half time. So actually, my first games were watching. So I've still got my, my second club, if you like, on West Bromwich Albion. So I would ride my uh, chopper up to the ground at half time, wait for the doors to open and watch West Bromwich Albion and watch those three degrees. So I actually watched just as much West Bromwich Albion when I was a kid as I did Liverpool, obviously, as I've grown older. You know, Liverpool kind of, you know, have been my kind of, you know, my my number one team. But growing up, West Bromwich Albion, for my fix of football, were their team. And they were... uh, incredible those three players and yes so for those who don't know the three degrees laurie cunningham brendan batson and silver regis yeah there's a brilliant book about the three of them and actually what those guys did for football and not just football actually society and some of the abuse that i witnessed them having from opposing fans it's a reminder of where we once were and it's horrible when to see the spectre of racism rearing its ugly head again in pockets. But I remember in the 70s, I must have been 12, 13 year olds, hearing grown men shout racist abuse, which was vitriol, was quite a, quite a scar, actually. Um, thankfully, those days are gone. I, I go with my son to the football. We don't experience any of that at Anfield. You get occasions of it sometimes, but it's nothing like it was in the dark days of the 70s and early 80s, for sure. I remember listening to Howard Gale being interviewed about being the first black player and what it was like in those days. And to some degree, for a long while, Liverpool was the team of people of colour who supported it. Everton didn't really have a coloured following. It was very much the Reds were and the Blues weren't. We had Johnny Barnes, who was majestic, who led us and it's interesting to see how both him and to a degree how Gale broke ground for Liverpool I think yeah they did and uh, but, but I'd say that the three degrees West Bromwich Albion almost 10 years before that were doing that and actually the fact that it was more than one it was three of them all fantastic players and here's the irony it was Ron Atkinson who was the manager yes and Ron Atkinson lost his career for his racist commentary yeah. do you true. think he was a racist I don't think people would have realised they were being a racist I think there is a lack of uh, cultural understanding of people who are different and I think in those days it was exacerbated Ron Atkinson was a football manager he wanted the best players possible to win him trophies they just happened to be black I don't think he understood the significance of that because there are people of a different generation who just don't see, they just don't see it. He saw them as fantastic players who happen to be black. Which I, is the right thing to do. Yeah, it's, it's about, they were, they were just brilliant in their own right. I think racism comes in very 
different shapes and forms from the vitriol and the abuse that you hear and physical violence to something much more subtle sometimes which people don't really understand which is racism just the same but it's much more unconscious and it's subtle and it's manifests in very different ways what Ron Atkinson did was unforgivable and hearing that was actually knowing what he'd achieved in his career all undone by a very offensive and thoughtless comment which revealed so much more about the man than we knew. It's the underlying racism that he always had within him. Now, you joined the BBC, what, back in the 80s, would you say? Oh, stop it. Stop putting the age on me. No, early 90s. So early 90s. Actually, I started when I was a student. I worked at Radio Sheffield where I was a student, which is why I was in uh, uh, um, Sheffield as a student during Hillsborough and certainly local radio. I actually did a spin doing kind of audience research as well uh, on weekends where I'd work for Barb and then joined the BBC in 1992 almost as, a, as well as a runner in daytime television and answering the phones and making cups of tea and then coming up with ideas for Good Morning Anna and Nick. So yeah, early 90s, 92. So talking of racism, what was it like in the BBC when you joined? Clearly now there is a more diverse front of house, both women and people of colour. I'll turn on the news. When, when I was a kid growing up, it was white male only. Then it became some females, Angela Rippon. And now you're seeing BBC Question Time, one of its flag shows, being hosted by a woman, Emily Maitlis, in the interview with Prince Andrew, being lauded. Is the BBC naturally diverse now, or is it still a challenge? I think in all organisations, there is still work to do. I think the BBC has made huge strides, I have to say, from when I first started. You are seeing both on and off screen. And I think it's, 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 it has to, because it's not just a moral thing. Actually, we're a universally funded licence fee paying organisation. Everybody pays the same amount. And one of the beauties of the BBC and one of its main aims and why I'm so drawn to it as an organisation is it's there for everybody and as the population is changing and as we have more diversity and it's 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 not just ethnic diversity it's about class for me always has been I think we've got a huge amount still to do but we've made huge strides when I started I cut my teeth I was started off in daytime tv and working on live television but actually where I really learned was the BBC had a multicultural programs department where I kind of progressed my career from a researcher to a producer to a director to a series producer and then eventually heading up that unit in Birmingham Pebble Mill which was a magical place and it's where I made mistakes it's where I made really proud of some of the programs we made but probably I made some stuff that I wouldn't put on again but uh, it was um, it was a great nursery slope and I think we don't have those specialist units anymore because actually it's not just about having a multicultural programs department. It's about actually seeding diversity across the whole organization. And it's a big organization. So we've got a fantastic head of creative diversity, June Sarpong, who joined us last year and huge strides are being made in terms of making sure that the organization reflects the audience that we serve. So that wasn't always there. In the early 90s, it was quite tokenistic, I think it felt. So now it feels, both on and off screen, that we are absolutely reflecting our audiences in our output across 
all of them. Yeah, the first program that ever addressed how I felt was Goodness Gracious Me. The, the comedy in that was sharp, it was witty, and it did cross over. But being an Asian Brit, it really did touch on the points of my childhood. The classic, I'm going for an English, or the dad who says everything is made in India. Those moments were just got comic gold for me, I have to say. It's, it's, it's the power of story. We all want to see stories that reflect us. That's what you connect with. And I remember growing up, crikey, when if you saw a, an Asian or, or, or black person on screen, it's the classic kind of, come down, everyone come down and watch because there's a black and brown person. Exactly. And it was an exciting thing. But you'd kind of go, oh, look, we're on screen. So I think hearing our stories and what, Goodness Gracious Me did, which was a seminal program, definitely was actually bring our stories into the mainstream, not just into our little homes and for us to talk about, but actually into the mainstream where the broader population can also see that actually we can be funny and clever and witty. And that's why that was such a seminal piece of television for sure. And I think you're seeing that now, Romish's series, what people like Anita Rani are doing on, on Countryfile and the One Show and what Mabin are doing, Manline Mabin and Adil Ray with Citizen Khan. These are all people who've had the platform of the BBC to do something very creative. So it'll be really interesting as we head into the, the digital world that we're in now, actually seeing a kind of democratisation of uh, content and of people who have access to those platforms to do funny stuff, to do thoughtful stuff, to do stuff that makes you think. So I think we are in the golden age of broadcasting right now, despite what many people think. A question you, you touched on earlier and I, I wanted to go back to was the government prior to COVID was comfortably anti-BBC because of the awkward questions that Andrew Neil was trying to pose to Boris Johnson. And I'm sure President Cummings was not very happy about their reaction. But you mentioned that the BBC isn't Netflix. It's not Prime. It's not any of those other mainstream. Where do you see the BBC in 10 years? Do you hope that we will still be a tax license funded organisation? Or do you think it will go, have to go commercial and change? Well, that's a very big question, Sam, and for people who are far more important than me in the organisation to answer. What I can say is the BBC, particularly in the last uh, month, has shown its true value. Yes. People want to come together, and there's no better place in terms of broadcasting for it to do that. Netflix is brilliant. I've got my Netflix subscription. I've got my Amazon prescription. I've got my BT all of them are fantastic in their own right. But actually, at times like this, I think the BBC, not just for what it does for audiences in the UK, but as a global brand, one which has the highest values and journalistically is holding truth to power, is something that I think will remain a big focus. And I'm not just saying this because I, I, I am working for the BBC, but the reason why I've stayed in the BBC, I did leave for a, a number of years and that was incredible. But the reason the BBC is so special is because it is genuinely making a difference. And I think Children in Need is just one example. The BBC, not just what it does on air, but what it does, the difference it makes in the UK off air. You know, I don't see the likes of Netflix or Amazon. Um, I think people will regret if we lose the BBC. It's a bit like 
people have realised the value of the NHS in this time. I think if we lose the BBC, we will never get it back. And other countries look at us and what we have. It is a trusted source. You know, Fox News is not trusted. There's many other political TV stations in Russia that are not world trusted, but the world service, people will turn to it. The BBC America or or if I need to find the news and know what's going on, I don't turn on Sky, I don't turn on ITV, I turn to the BBC. And it still has that gold standard of trust, I think. And just like every other organisation, the BBC has to adapt with, with, with the changing world. And it is. I mean, if you think about things like the iPlayer, it's an incredible invention which the BBC came up with. We weren't actually the first, but actually... The way that that has been pulled together, and you're seeing more and more on iPlayer, and it's people are watching television differently than they used to. So I think there is very much a place for the BBC still retaining its core public service element of informing, educating, and entertaining, but using these new platforms to actually drive new innovation. The iPlayer is just one example, and BBC Sounds, which you only launched last year, incredible treasure trove of, of content. I think there is still a desire for audiences to have some curated content. I'm not of the kind of school which says television is dead. Just like when television came along, uh, a lot of people thought radio was dead. That was the end of radio. Far from it. I think there's room for your Amazons and your Netflixes and, and, and all of those channels. But the BBC remains... Uh, a trusted key part of the fabric of the UK. And I think we would be fools to kind of let that go, especially with its worldwide reputation and the impact that we're seeing every day across, whether it be radio, television, online. Yes, there is a license fee, but look what you're getting for your license fee. You're getting all of those channels, the iPlayer, children's radio stations, local stations which have come into their own over the last few weeks too. I don't think competitors can even think about putting on a service that does so much. No, I agree. Tommy Nagra, thank you so much for your time. It's been a fascinating conversation. I look forward to Children in Need in November. Good luck with that. Where can people go if they want to still donate for the Big Night In? Yeah, so the website, The Big Night In, or Big Night In, so www.bbc.co.uk slash Big Night In, there is still uh, a chance to win some of the amazing prizes and to donate. And obviously, we're also now thinking about Children in Need for November, and all details are on the Children in Need website, which is bbc.co.uk slash Children in Need. So you'll find everything you need uh, on there. Tommy, just leave me to say, you'll never walk alone. Bless you. Thank you, Sam. You too. Thank you, Sam. That show was amazing. Don't forget to visit samtalk.technology to discover more great shows. See you next week. Same time, same place. 